ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердце наши замляли. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia's so-called near abroad has been the locus of several frozen conflicts and territorial disputes. Transnistria, Nagorno-Karabakh, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and most recently Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Why is this geopolitical space so contested and the site of several nested conflicts between local actors, Russia and its neighbors, and Russia and the so-called West? What place does Russia's near abroad play in its geopolitical imagination, and how can critical geopolitics provide us with a deeper understanding of Russian and Western interests? I turn to Gerard Toll for some answers. Gerard Toll is a professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech. He writes about U.S. foreign policy, geopolitics, and territorial conflicts. He's co-author with Carol Dahlman of Bosnia Remade, Ethnic Cleansing and Its Reversal and editor of several books on critical geopolitics. Gerard's newest book is Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest over Ukraine and the Caucasus, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Gerard Toll. So I, I thought we'd start by having you explain some of the concepts informing your book Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest over Ukraine and the Caucasus. So what is critical geopolitics and, and how does it apply to Russia and its near abroad? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on, Sean. I'm a, a big fan of the podcast. Um, critical geopolitics can be defined as the scholarly study of uh, geography and statecraft. You know, it's, a, it's an attempt to think outside the traditional framework of, of geopolitics and to subject that, that framework and, and really the whole question of geography and statecraft more broadly to critical analysis. And this really begins by uh, adopting a sort of ethnographic attitude towards foreign policy. Uh, it sort of involves seeing foreign policy discourse and practice as in part the workings of a strange tribe. And indeed, kind of living and working in Washington, D.C., as I do, it sometimes feels that way. Um, but, but you know, we begin by, uh, from a critical geopolitics point of view at least, by analysing how do we talk about foreign states, about geopolitical crises, about threats, enemies and the like. Uh, that's the initial raw material for, for critical geopolitics. But, but it's also a reworking of classic themes in, in geopolitics. The geographic setting of foreign policy, competition between states, the role of technology in um, compressing time and space and conditioning how we experience the world. Uh, and in the book, um, I use three concepts as sort of thinking tools. Um, first, the idea of a geopolitical culture, how, how states see the world, how elites strategize about security. Um, secondly, a geopolitical field the spatial arena uh, and its players, and thirdly, the geopolitical condition, how technology shapes and transforms the practice of statecraft. 
Um, but but the theory is largely in the background because uh, you know I wanted to write a work that was accessible and, and readable, uh, yet very different from what a journalist or a practitioner would write because it rests upon uh, critical geopolitical concepts and themes. Right. I think it's really important that one of the things that you did do is is. I mean, you said at one point in your introduction, it's almost like a literary criticism of geopolitics. And, and that is to understand the players, how they understand the world around them, how they see themselves, how they see their adversaries, and also how they understand the spaces that they inhabit or the spaces that neighbor them um, in their own kind of national, international imagination. So... How does this help us understand something about Russia and how it how it sees its its near so called near abroad? In the book, I analyze the clash of geopolitical cultures between Russia and the West over um, post Soviet space. This so called near abroad. Um, there's a connection between this book and my previous work, which was on the collapse of Yugoslavia and, and the war in Bosnia. Uh, both works analyze sort of violent territorial conflicts in the wake of the collapse of communist federal states, but really empires. In both cases, one has a core successor state, Russia in near abroad, and Serbia in, in the, my previous work, uh, Bosnia Remade, which was co-authored. Um, and, and the su- core successor state believes itself a territorial victim of the collapse of the communist state, and it helps sponsor breakaway statelets in neighboring newly independent states. So I'm just approaching the case of Russia and its neighborhood with broad themes about uh, territorial change, geopolitical culture, and great power competition in mind. Now, your your book, you you come in one of your first chapters, you, pr- you pretty much come right out of the box and, and even title it with this question. So why does Russia invade its neighbors? Um, so what are some of the ways in which people have tried to answer this question? Yeah, I wanted to sort of uh, begin with a, a provocative frame and then sort of a, uh, step back from that a little bit and, and ask questions about it. So Near Abroad is really focused on, on two major events, uh, the Russian invasion of Georgia in August 2008, and then uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine from February 2014 onwards uh, in two well-known areas, Crimea and Ukraine. Now, interestingly, both the standard uh, sort of liberal explanation and the sort of political realist counter-explanation declare that geopolitics is why Russia invaded its neighbors in these cases. Um, But they mean different things by that. In the liberal explanation, Russia is still a 19th century uh, state that views power in terms of territorial domination and control. They still practice geopolitics, whereas we do not. Um, That's the sort of the gist of the general uh, liberal argument. The political realist explanation uh, articulated most famously or or infamously, depending on your point of view, uh, by, by John Mersheimer, is that Russia acted the way it did because of Western encroachment upon its borders. He describes Ukraine as, uh, I believe, a buffer state of enormous strategic importance to Russia. No Russian leader would tolerate a, a military alliance that was Moscow's mortal enemy until recently moving into Ukraine. End quote. And, and he also uses this wonderful phrase, which for a student of geopolitics is just uh, really uh, very fascinating. And he says, this is Geopolitics 101. Great powers are always sensitive to potential threats, 
near their home territory. Now, now I find both of these explanations to be inadequate. They, they both rest on rather deterministic foundations. They're overly focused on great power relations, and they don't answer critical questions concerning timing. And the, the, the very frame, Russian invasion, so centralizes the Kremlin's actions that we neglect the circumstances within which these actions uh, occurred. Um, and the, the political theorist, uh, Judith Butler, has a lovely sentence in one of her interviews where she writes, quote, politics has a character of contingency and context to it that cannot be predicted at the level of theory, end quote. Um, and so that uh, sense of contingency and context, that's what I was trying to provide in Europe Abroad. Um, you know, there are larger structural power dynamics at work, but it, I really wanted to get at the contingencies that um, surround these two particular invasions. Right, right. And we'll get certainly get to the, some of what some of those are as we as we go along in, the, in our conversation today. But first, it's interesting, and it's something I, I admit I hadn't thought of before, but when I read it in the book and started thinking about it, it made more and more sense. And that is, you, you call post-Soviet space a contested geopolitical space, or geopolitical field, excuse me. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, this is in part me taking a uh, you know, perspective from outside of the uh, outside of Russian studies and the like. So post-Soviet space is a kind of field of decolonization, uh, but it's not a straightforward one. Um, and so building upon my uh, experience with other contexts and drawing upon the, the work of Rogers Brubacher and others, um, what I outline in the book is a framework for thinking about so post-Soviet space as a geopolitical field composed of five different types of geopolitical places. So first you have the metropolitan center that is striving to define for itself a stable post-imperial spatial identity. So this was, let's say, Britain, uh, in the past, it, it could be Serbia after the collapse of uh, the uh, of Yugoslavia. Although, of course, that that collapse in and of itself was was a long long process. But secondly, um, an inner abroad within this center. Um, a region that seeks greater autonomy or independence uh, f uh, for a geographic region within the metropolitan state. So the concern with secessionism within is, is I think, important. Thirdly, uh, a near abroad of nationalizing states on, on the metropolitan state's borders, seeking to break free from legacies of dependencies and interdependence with the former imperial center and, and to possibly join alternative security structures. And then fourth, and nearer abroad. So regions within that nationalizing states where non-core nation groups are concentrated. And the term non-core may not be that familiar, but it's national minorities. Uh, so I'm talking about uh, Abkhaz and Ossetians within Georgia, um, and then uh, to a certain extent, ethnic Russians uh, within uh, Crimea, although that in and of itself is, is a kind of different uh, dynamic. But anyway, places that ha may have held a special territorial status in the former um, multinational uh, communist empire. And then lastly, uh, far abroad and outside normative great power uh, seeking 
to extend its influence and reach into former closed imperial lands who are now open for new connectivities and, and new alignments. So you have five um, different spaces there. Instead of just thinking in terms of great powers or recognized states, you're thinking of sort of this as a territorial nexus that is interconnected and reactive to geopolitical competition and change. And so what Russia uh, does, uh, its concerns in Chechnya inform its relationship with Georgia and with uh, South Ossetia and so on and so forth. And that's one of the things that I wanted to try to convey in the book. Um, now, I, one of the things I don't really spend much time on, but is also significant, are these sort of uh, infrastructural networks and connectivities. And the Rocky Tunnel, for example, plays a crucial role in binding together North and, and South Ossetia. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a theme that's sort of, I hope uh, someone else kind of picks up. And, uh, yeah, there's there's work on that. that. And it's, it's obviously a very important issue now with, with Crimea, connecting Crimea to, to Russia. To kind of make an interpretation of, of what you're saying, it seems that this space, you know, here you have the Soviet system, uh, this, this multi-ethnic empire is shattered, and you have all of these kind of pieces, and it seems everyone is still trying to figure out where they belong in the in the geopolitical map, um, in the aftermath of this collapse. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes, I think so. And uh, it was a field for entrepreneurship uh, by local actors. And in many instances, they succeeded. We know they succeeded in Moldova, in Karabakh, uh, and also in Georgia. Um, And, you know, there were ugly wars that were fought over these particular territories. Um, And so kind of, and then why did not that not happen in the case of... uh, uh, Crimea and uh, eastern Ukraine is, of course, a very, very interesting question, too. But there was a lot of entrepreneurship and there was a, a considerable degree of settling um, uh, that that is it's still occurring. And some people argue that we're still seeing the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, and so so I wanted to sort of convey that and also suggest that this is not necessarily something that is specific to uh, Russia and its near abroad to post-Soviet space. I mean, you can also think about these particular dynamics in relationship to, to great powers and their regions elsewhere. Now, another um, uh, the many concepts you developed to, to understand, to bring an almost literary criticism to uh, geopolitics in, in post-Soviet space is the idea of affective geopolitics. Um, and I think this is actually really important because here it plays on people's imagination of the state they live in and its territory. It plays on people's emotional connections to that. Um, so why is, is, what, what is affective geopolitics and why is it important? Well, yes, affective geopolitics is an, a very important concept in the book. Um, and the book is not a theory book. I don't spend uh, an, a lot of time explicitly theorizing it. Um, but it's, at its most basic, affective geopolitics is simply a concept I use to challenge the sort of misleading association of geopolitics with cool, deliberative, hard-headed reasoning. Um, so I use the concept to highlight four themes. Um, First, um, 
I understand it to, to, to really underscore the importance of highly personalized relationships and antagonisms um, that mark post-Soviet space and the particular invasions that I'm talking about. So Saakashvili's relationship with Putin, for example, quickly becomes toxic and competitive. Uh, and this found uh, expression in explicitly gendered ways. Yeah, with Saakashvili symbolically diminishing Putin, uh, you know, mocking him as Lily Putin, uh, while you know Putin famously threatened to hang Saakashvili by the balls in front of President Sarkozy in in August two thousand and eight. Yeah, there's a lot of masculinity you point out, which is really yes. interesting. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, feminist work has really kind of influenced uh, critical geopolitics, my thinking uh, on this. And there's been some excellent uh, feminist work on uh, Putin and on Russia. And secondly, I, I use it to point to the power of emotional beliefs and visions in the practice of geopolitics. Now, in the book, I discuss Russian revanchism and, and Putin's desire to make Russia great again. Uh, and, and I describe how Georgia also became a noble and idealistic cause in the Caucasus for certain U.S. politicians. Um, and I also describe, perhaps somewhat provocatively for some, the whole idea of a Europe whole and free is akin to a civilizational mission. Uh, these are all affect, affective-fueled notions, um, sometimes traveling under the, the term values. But there's a, a sort of emotional commitment, emotional beliefs, here, which I think is very, very important for us to understand, in, in, if we want us to understand the actual practice of geopolitics. So thirdly, I, I use the notion to, to underscore the relationship between affect and territory. And this is what you were, you were getting at earlier. And it's very important. And, uh, you know, you've, you've brought this up in other discussions you've had in, the po in podcasts with, with people. And it's absolutely uh, crucial. Nationalists often tend to view territory as a body or as a geopodity. And there's sort of anxieties about aliens within, about plots to dismember the territory. Breakaway territories are sometimes described as amputated limbs. And there's also the theme of sacrifice and the, you know, the blood of patriots making certain territories sacred. And, and this is one of the reasons why I think Crimea's annexation resonated with some Russians. The Crimean War, the Great Patriotic War. So Crimea is an affective space um, in that way, but it's also in a, a, an affective space in other ways, uh, as a sort of a place of memory of happy holidays and so forth. Um, now, this is not a particularly Russian thing. You know, you just think about the Alamo, Pearl Harbor in the U.S., uh, Flanders Fields for the British. So it's about the symbolic emotional weight places acquire in geopolitical. Um, and uh, so that's an important theme. Finally, you'll, you'll have noticed that I, I pay attention to music, memorials, and state cultivation of memory in the book, especially the Great Patriotic War. Um, and what I wanted to, to underscore was the importance of um, state-sponsored mobilizations designed to induce geopolitical affect, the feeling that Russia is great again because Crimea is ours. Um, you know, I, I have to confess... Uh, Growing up in Ireland, um, where you learn uh, rebel ballads is one way about in which you, I, I got to appreciate actually the importance, not simply of uh, the kind of top-down affect, but also bottom-up folk music and its laments about places that have been lost and so on and so forth. These, these are, I think, very, very important things. So, so critical geopolitics is not simply the study of 
the practice of geopolitics, but also popular geopolitics. Uh, and there's been some really interesting things written by by uh, Russian scholars on this uh, in the case of looking at uh, the whole idea of Kremlin-Nash and, uh, and um, so the work of Mikhail Suslov, for example, has been really very, uh, and I've enjoyed reading that. And in speaking about this idea of you know the nation as a body and 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 pieces of it you know being lopped off or separated is this kind of traumatic effect to the kind of consciousness of the nation and the territorial consciousness of the nation so how did the soviet union's collapse shape this for for russia yeah well that's that's a big question uh, you know <laughs> Uh, in, in the book, I argue that, that Russian geopolitical culture was characterized by a generalized feeling that, that Russia was a territorial victim of, of the Soviet collapse. And so you did have people talking about amputated limbs and, and so on and so forth. But, but as you know, and as studies have uh, shown, most ordinary Russians were too busy with surviving to focus on these kind of larger geopolitical questions. Um, now, following the work of others, I outline three different traditions within a post-Soviet Russian geopolitical culture. Um, and this is more at the more elite level. Uh, so a Western liberal tradition that, that quickly was abandoned, uh, a statist one that uh, became hegemonic, and then its active competitor, a uh, Russian imperialist tradition with various various expressions. Um, but the pervasive sense of the loss of position and power, however, is what is kind of significant and what uh, I think becomes important later. Russia was on its knees and needed a savior and enter Vladimir Putin, as you know, in, in very, very controversial circumstances. Um, and then Chechnya and the second war in Chechnya becomes a means by which he demonstrates himself to be, I think I used the phrase, territorial tough in the book. You mentioned the, of course, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the other side of this. And, and in particular, you mentioned the fact that in Georgia, Georgia becomes a kind of cause celeb for some American politicians. And that you write, and you write that the uh, Bucharest Declaration in April 2008, which basically welcomed Georgian and Ukrainian entry into NATO, you said it gave voice to a radical policy ambition. So t talk about this declaration and, and what it represented to the, its various players, say, United States, Georgia, and Russia. So the Bucharest Declaration was a sort of decision document uh, that came out of a meeting of the heads of state of NATO countries um, in early April 2008. Um, and remember, Kosovo declared its unilaterally declared its independence in, in February, just a month earlier. The, the declaration welcomed Ukraine and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations. Um, but it then it has added this kind of very, very uh, key sentence, uh, quote, we agree today that these countries will become members of NATO, end quote. Now, this strange wording that in effect it was the sort of manifest destiny of Georgia and Ukraine to join uh, NATO was a compromise between those who wanted to give NATO, um, to give Georgia and uh, Ukraine <coughs> a so-called membership action plan and those who opposed that first step uh, towards membership. Um, it gave voice to a, a radical policy, uh, policy uh, ambition because he, here was NATO really in effect saying to Russia, we're going to take 
uh, Georgia and Ukraine eventually, there's constituent parts of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, and one, Georgia is a country directly south of your most unstable internal region, the North Caucasus, Chechnya. We'll also take Kiev, we'll take Sevastopol, a, a Russian, which has been a Russian in the Soviet naval base since the 1780s. And the front line between the West and Russia will now be north of Gori and, and east of Donetsk. It, it was a bold power play on the geopolitical chessboard, and, and it's still official NATO policy. The Obama administration has, has never repudiated um, I should note, however, that, that Charles Kupchin, who is a senior advisor, was a senior advisor in Obama's National Security Council, published a very interesting op-ed in the New York Times there in May saying that Trump, uh, after the Balkans are, are integrated into NATO, should call a halt to NATO expansion. And, and I looked it up uh, this morning, and there's an interesting line in there where he says, quote, for NATO to keep moving eastwards and eventually offer membership to Georgia and Ukraine, as promised at NATO's 2008 summit, is a recipe for a strategic train wreck, end quote. Um, now, at the time, what the declaration had was a radicalizing and a polarizing effect in, in the near abroad. Saakashvili felt emboldened, as did Russia, to prevent the, this power play on the part of NATO. Yeah, and that I think leads, you know, I think there's a direct connection between between this and April and then that August, Russia and Ukraine, and, I'm sorry, Russia and Georgia go to war. So what was this con this eight-day conflict about and, and where does it stand in your understanding of the geopolitical contest in this region? It's sometimes described as a five-day war, but, uh, you know, you will have others say it's an ongoing war and it hasn't really ever ended. Um so there are three chapters in the book devoted to to the really the August War to, to provide background to it. So the war broke out on August seventh when the Georgian military launched an all-out attack on Kunvali, the the capital of the so-called Republic of South Ossetia, the de facto state that was was supported by by Putin and the Kremlin. Um, now, relations had deteriorated in the region since the summer of 2004 when Saakashvili made his first power play to seize control of the region. And what, it, what I do in the book is I try to convey how this war was really co-created by all parties involved. Uh, it's not a simple case of blaming one side. One side is, is responsible. Um, it, you know, there's a moral complexity to it that I, I try to convey. Now, my, my research colleagues and I actually visited South Ossetia in March 2010, and we were able to see firsthand the sort of complex local geography that defined the conflict and the, the catastrophic destruction of former Georgian villages north of uh, Skin Valley. Um, and as is typical in, in such conflicts, each side, and, and here at the, I, at the local level, I mean Georgians and pro-Russian Ossetians, see themselves as victimized by the other, and each have their own sort of collection of outrages. Uh, and, 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 you know, each indeed have suffered greatly. They have hurt each other. Um, what what is different here, however, is that each side was able to enlist higher up allies, in effect conjoining a series of somewhat separate conflicts, a very localized Ossetian-Georgian conflict within South Ossetia, and then a conflict between the Georgian state and its breakaway regions, 
then a conflict between Georgia and Russia, and finally a conflict between the United States and Russia over, over the near abroad. So there's a sort of nested four different levels here, um, but they are interdigitated and connected. In And so what I try to do in the book and the, the justification uh, uh, for the book was to provide this sort of deeper, thicker analysis than the prevalent conception we have in the West that it's simply, you know, Georgia was invaded by Russia. You know, well, let's look at the particular circumstances of that that particular invasion, and uh, and and look at the at the history of that particular conflict. And and then again, the next kind of big flare up in in your story, also in 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 our world, and also in your story, is the Russia's annexation of Crimea in two thousand fourteen, and then its military intervention in eastern Ukraine. And this is you know the most kind of major revanchist push by by russia um and so what place does this crimea and the idea of Novorossiya uh, play in russia's post-soviet geopolitical imagination i think it's pretty important to distinguish crimea from Novorossiya. you know crimea was was always a special place for for russia and russians um um, uh, uh, as you know, the official Russian foreign policy was that Crimea was not a contested region. And, and Putin, in fact, reiterates this after August 2008. Russians could go there, and Putin did with his biker friends. Um, you know, and as long as Russia's lease on Sevastopol, the naval base, was guaranteed, there were no ostensible problems. Um, in the book, I describe the circumstances that led to the, the Russian invasion of Crimea. Now, uh, the important caveat, there's still a lot we don't know. Um, what I'm doing here is sort of the first attempt at a second draft of history. Um, but the evidence suggests that retaining the base was Putin's first concern, and his move, his initial move, was a gamble. Uh, the evidence suggests he did not have a clear have a clear end game in mind when he ordered the special forces to seize the peninsula. Um, but the uh, the kind of the question is, could they protect the base without seizing the peninsula? And I think the internal polling by the Kremlin soon after they, they acted suggested annexation would be overwhelmingly welcomed by the local population. Uh, and so in the book, I um, discuss how they, in effect, choreographed the referendum and the annexation, this return to the motherland uh, spectacle. Um, now, Novorossiya, uh, is different. Novorossiya was a, a somewhat a marginal imperial nationalist imaginary. It was never part of the uh, Russian ideal uh, and that particular debate over the Russian idea in the 1990s. Um, but it uh, emerged uh, in 2014 uh, and it brought together a red sort of neo-Soviet, a brown, a neo-fascist, and a, a white or neo-Tsarist network of imperial nationalists who otherwise have, you know, argue a lot with each other. Um, and, and again, there's, there's much we don't know about the inner workings of the Kremlin and who told whom to do what. But the evidence that, that I present uh, in the book um, and that is available suggests that Putin initially gave his advisors... Um, 
Sergei Glasiev and Konstantin Malofiev and their network of agents a free hand to try to create a secessionist Novorossiya on the ground across southeastern Ukraine. And he was in part persuaded of this particular project. But but they largely failed. And, and, and the war for Novorossiya became a war in the Donbass. It, it had a, its own particular contingent logic to it. Um, and in the chapter on uh, the Novorossiya project, uh, I present survey data from the research uh, my colleague uh, John O'Loughlin and I did on the idea of Novorossiya in southeast Ukraine uh, and Crimea in December 2014. So this is a book with graphs uh, and uh, some uh, data, uh, hopefully uh, attractively presented, easily assimilated. <laughs> uh, uh, but support for the notion was very thin in, in most of southeast Ukraine. Um, uh, now, we didn't survey in Luhansk uh, uh, and Donetsk um, because there were war zones uh, at the time. Um, but so Novorossiya was an imperious fantasy, a, a very dangerous one, and it helped ignite a war that's uh, unfortunately still burning lives uh, to this day. It, you know, considering that... Uh... You know, and I'm, here I'm asking for a bit of speculation on your part, but considering that it, it all intents and purposes is is a failure, and that you know there is a question as to how much you know indigenous support there is for these two projects, uh, Luhansk and, and and Donetsk republics. Is it, do you feel that the the Kremlin, in a way, has kind of gotten itself into a trap, and that it doesn't really know what to do with these these two entities? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think that there's considerable evidence to suggest that that's the case, that the, this, there was improvisation um, from the get-go, uh, and they sort of made one move, looked, checked what the reaction was, and then moved again, rather than there being a strategic vision. Um, you know, the, there is, I suppose, a strategic vision in as much as the goal may be to simply uh, ruin uh, or spoil um, Ukraine, uh, kind of ignite uh, instability, and uh, in that way, you know, that's that's a that's a dark strategic vision. It's a vision of uh, you know creating chaos. Uh, there's, um, you know, and that is not particularly a positive one, but um, I think that the argument is that they have created a situation that they may not necessarily have wanted from the outset. Um, and um, so there's a sort of contingent, uh, contingencies upon contingencies uh, at work here. Uh, but, you know, there are also things that we just don't know about. Uh, and we have to be humble uh, in 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 the face of that. Uh, and um, you know, I'm certainly ready to revise the book in the light of um, uh, of new information that comes out that's uh, that's solid and and verifiable. Yeah, it, it almost seems to me I, I kind of describe it in in more flippant moments as one of these like you broke it, you bought it situations where um, you know they basically helped and facilitated the the breaking of this region, and now they're kind of left with it, and then now they have to also somehow save face. So they kind of you know finding a way out if a way out is what the Kremlin is looking for is going to be a difficult one for them to kind of worm through. 
Yeah, wasn't it uh, Colin Powell talked about the pottery barn rule? That yeah, if you know, if you knock it over, you you break it, you you own it. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it is now uh, uh, obviously a political field within Russian politics, and therefore there are certain interests that need to be appeased. Uh, and uh, to the extent that the government there is seeking to head off threats on the right, um, then it, they have to be careful about what it is they do. Uh, so Gherkin, uh, for example, uh, looked like he could emerge as a potential um, figure who was um, uh, going to be in opposition to uh, Putin and then very quickly had the oxygen, the political, um, uh, the ability to kind of um, have access to main uh, TV and, and the like uh, cut from him. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there are multiple uh, issues at play and they're also seeking to see what they can get. And, you know, one of the issues that is at play that is very, very important and it's part of the theme of the book is they're actually locals. That's what I was going to ask you about. Like, how much do you see uh, this kind of nested conflict in the way you describe the Ossetian situation? We have to assume that in this particular case that you have... Um, you, there were polls done in Ukraine in March of uh, 2014, and you could see already concentrations of support uh, for Russia, Russian intervention in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, but also you see it uh, levels of support, minority for sure, but nevertheless still there in other areas, in Odessa and Kharkiv. Uh, now, you then a layer upon top of that a war and you the polarization that comes from that uh, and then you're going to get people who are alienated from the state because they see that that state has uh, you know been taken over by fascists and therefore is attacking them uh, and they therefore no longer feel it is their home and therefore want to uh, create um, uh, another uh, state um, and so that's a real dynamic and it's a real danger. Uh, and you see that also, that is something that, uh, that my colleagues and I observed when we were doing research in Abkhazia, in Transnistria and, and Karabakh. It's just a sense of massive alienation from the parent state. There was absolutely no way that people were going to go back to that uh, state because they saw that that state had attacked them. Uh, uh, and um, I, you know, I do not know uh, what the situation, is, what public opinion is in Donetsk and Luhansk. It's a really very interesting question. There, there has been some research on, done uh, on it. There's been some polling. It's been polling based upon asking people, phoning them up, and so that uh, that is not really something that we can trust, uh, frankly. Uh, because people are very nervous and you're in a war zone, you're going to say whatever you think it is the person who is calling you wants to hear. Right, especially with a, with a leadership there that's willing to take personal you know, reprisal. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yes. It's a, it's a dangerous place to be. Uh, and so, uh, now, one of the things that's kind of interesting for, for those of us study de facto states or these breakaway regions is that um, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, um, 
are really on a different scale from the others. Um, so we're in the case of South Ossetia, we're talking about a population of twenty-five to fifty-five thousand. No one knows exactly. When we were there, they said that the population is fifty-five thousand. Uh, Georgians, I've heard Georgians say it's only like twenty thousand or so. Um, but um, uh, Abkhazia. 220,000 or so. Um, and then you look at, uh, and uh, so Transnistria used to have about 700,000. It's probably below 500,000 now. Uh, I actually have a table at the end of the book where I uh, talk about this. But Donetsk and Luhansk, we're talking about millions of people, you know. And so this is a different ball game, and it's a different type of place. And so... Um, I don't know uh, what uh, what the dynamics there are, and uh, I I would say that uh, for a lot of people they're very alienated from Ukraine, but they also may be just as alienated, if not more alienated, from the local leadership, from the the uh, you know what people would describe as the thugs and uh, mafia uh, group that have taken over. You state that there are three kind of geopolitical frames in which the United States tries to understand the current standoff with Russia. Uh, what are they and why do you find them inadequate? So in the last chapter of the book, I, I try to examine the, the discourse that we use to, to understand Russia's neighborhood. And so the, the three prevalent frames that I critique are, firstly, the idea of occupied territories. Uh, that is a frame to understand Russia's diverse, uh, I call it an archipelago of dependencies uh, beyond its border. Secondly, the term sphere of influence is a description of Russia's foreign policy goals. And thirdly, uh, the notion of supporting freedom and the free world as reasons for why the, the US must provide financialists to Ukraine, um, including with weapons. Um, and, and so what I argue, all are expressions of um, this, what I term, thin geopolitics. So thin geopolitics is the language, essentially, of black and white, of moralized dichotomies. And this language is anti-geographical. It actually inhibits our understanding of a post-Soviet space as a geopolitical field. Um, but it is in keeping with a long-standing tendency in US geopolitical culture to make international crises um, quote-unquote clearer than the truth. Uh, a very famous uh, phrase uh, from Truman's uh, Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. Um, now, someone told me the argument I'm trying to make uh, on the term occupied territories is too subtle to be grasped. Uh, I got, let me try to explain it. Uh, because, you, you know, people immediately assume, so you're saying they're not, they're not occupied, you know. And so... I understand why Ukraine and, uh, or why Georgia and Ukraine describe Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Crimea, and the Donbass as occupied. You know, Russia is the predominant power in these regions. They are legally part of Georgia and Ukraine. I, you know, I get that. This, their position, their particular uh, uh, discourse is understandable. But it is also a fact that the majority of the population in these regions, and that's one of the things I've been doing research on, on kind of provide doing survey research in, in de facto states. Uh, now, there's no, this is, we have to talk about the exception of the Donbass because, you know, there hasn't been a good uh, a research done there, or at least I haven't seen it. Maybe there has been. Um, but the majority of the population in these regions want closer ties with Russia. And they view the local de facto state regimes that are sponsored by Russia there as legitimate. 
Now, most, not all, do not see themselves as, as occupied. Now, we, we have to also be aware that within Abkhazia, for example, there are ethnic Georgians, and, uh, you know, I would expect that they, the ethnic Georgians living in, in Gali may well see that they are, some would see themselves as, as occupied. Uh, and, of course, Ukrainians, uh, ethnic Ukrainians that still live in Crimea and so on and so forth. I mean, these... You know, the, the Tatars, for example. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, I, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so we have to be sensitive to these, but the, the these particular issues. The, um, the, the, however, the overall point is that the majority of the population there fear the ostensible parent state. Now, these are awkward and unwelcome facts from the perspective of the parent state. And so, so my argument... Um, is simply to call these contested territories. They're not like occupied territories in the same way as Palestine, for example, where, where one nation's military is actively repressed uh, another uh, uh, on a daily basis. This, these are different, and therefore we call them contested territories, and then one of the aspects of them as contested territories is that the parent state sees them as occupied. Um, I am afraid that the United States and the political class in the United States um, sort of locks into the language of the parent state and in so doing is unable to have its own position and have uh, uh, have an appreciation of the moral complexities that are involved. Yeah, and finally, you I mean you've hinted at this, and certainly your discussion speaks to this. But you, you're you're arguing for a much thicker and a deeper understanding of, you know, the geopolitics of post-Soviet state, post-Soviet space, and your your concept of it as contested, I think, is speaking to that. So how how would this deeper geopolitical understanding help us, perhaps, get past the current state of say U.S.-Russia relations? Well. Yeah, uh, critical geopolitics will set us free. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get crazy now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, deeper geopolitical understanding has to begin with with geographic knowledge of the territories of the the former Soviet Union, their their histories, the you know, contested geopolitical dynamics that characterize the region, and um, so it comes from moving beyond the the thin geopolitical categories we use as sort of crutches. Uh, and it comes from questioning our own you know, moral superiority and for, it, it requires a, an empathetic stretch to understand the motivations, the ideology of people who are our opponents or who we see as enemies. Um, I, I, I argue in the book it also comes from a certain worldliness about international affairs. Uh, you know, state formation and state collapse, uh, as I saw in, uh, in, in Yugoslavia, are often very, very violent and brutal processes. Uh, they, and this occurs regularly in human history. Uh, in the bo- book, I, I quote uh, George Kennan, who commented on how the world political map um, is not and, and should not be, it cannot be a fixed and static thing. By nature, it's an unstable phenomenon, constant state of, of change and flux. Now, that's a very, very basic point, but it's a story, extremely important one, is that the world is extremely complicated and there are lots of motivations for smaller peoples 
to seek to uh, rebel against what they see as oppressive regimes. Uh, we need to understand that and we need to um, um, sort of dial back our uh, or sort of abandon our sort of rather dichotomized moral categories uh, and dive into the complexities. Um, now, critical geopolitics, in, in my opinion, drives us towards this de deeper geopolitical understanding. But how might it, might it help today? Well, <laughs> I, I think we have to have another podcast to talk about that one, you know? That was Gerard Toll, professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech and author of Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest over Ukraine and the Caucasus, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Say there was war.
Yeah. 